This morning I made a list of chores that might lift my spirits. One, lose ten pounds. Two, rewrite the last two stories so I can start something new. Three, paint a picture of a mole. Four, make myself go out when I don't want to. Kevin Lerner, editor-in-chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, senior editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we have David Sedaris reading from his diaries. Clint Smith on Kevin Young. Victoria Chang reading from her new poetry collection, Barbie Chang. And so much more. So stick around. published our last issue of 2017, the November-December issue. That's right. It's our annual independent publishing issue. And you know, I've always thought if you want to get a good picture of what's going on in contemporary publishing, you know, I suppose you could check out the bestseller lists and study what the big publishers are doing. But I think you can get a better indication of what's happening by looking at all the literary magazines and small presses uh, that are sort of on the front lines of new writing. We have databases of literary magazines and small presses at pw.org, and combined they have over 1,600 listings of markets for your work. It can be a little intense trying to go through them all, so for our new issue, we found 50 literary magazines and five small presses that are open to submissions during the month of November, and none of them charge reading fees. We also included a really useful guide to best practices for submitting to magazines by Laura Maylene Walter um, to help with the process. Right. So... Happy submitting, and good luck. On a related note, we have a piece by contributing editor Michael Bourne about how advances work. It's called Getting Paid. Right. You know, it seems like every season there is at least one novelist. You hear about a novelist who gets paid this amazing advance, you know, like Garth Riss Kahlberg or Emma Klein. Um, They get paid like $2 million uh, for an advance, and... It always is surprising, and you think, wow, is it is it a really good book? And sometimes it is, you know, um, sometimes it is. And uh, But I always think, like, how could they, how on earth could they earn back that advance? Um, so Michael Bourne um, talked to a number of agents and editors and just uh, tried to sort of explore exactly how this process works. And uh, it's a really great piece. We haven't really... Um, dealt with this subject before in our pages. So I was really happy he could do it. And he actually finds some really interesting things out. Uh, One of which is that um, he says at least two thirds of all books never actually earn back the advance, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really high percentage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's interesting. He was also able to talk to Emily St. John Mandel, Mm -hmm. um, who of course is the author of Station Eleven, which is a very big book. Right. It was a good book. It was very good. I just uh, was able to read that this past summer. Loved it. Man, yep. I tore through that in like two sittings and then sent it to like four people as gifts. And just right. said, you have to read this now. Right. And she's got a really great perspective. She was uh, initially published by a small press, Unbridled Books, mm-hmm. um, before uh, moving over to Knopf. 
And um, she got an $800,000 advance for her next novel, uh, which is tentatively titled The Glass Hotel. And that's coming out in late 2019. Mm-hmm. In other publishing news, we have a Q&A with Jemaya Wilson, the new publisher and executive director of The Feminist Press, uh, which is a 47-year-old nonprofit with the mission to publish feminist voices, in particular queer writers, women, and non-binary writers of color. That's right. It's a great press with a great mission and now a great publisher as well. Uh, one of the things that she tells Jennifer Baker in this Q&A, um, she says, quote, we're prepared to speak truth to power through our books and voices in the midst of attacks on free expression and the rise of authoritarianism, misogyny, and racial violence. We publish books other publishers deem too risky, controversial, or radical. So it's pretty exciting. And you can read that online at PW.org. Also in this issue, we have our second annual Five Over 50. Uh, This is something we started last year. Um, And essentially, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a a roundup of debut authors uh, who published their first books in the past year, and they are all 50 years old or older. Yeah, and they each wrote um, kind of a a short essay about their path to publication, what led them here, um, the challenges that they had to face along the way Mm -hmm. um, to getting their first books out. Right. So uh, this year, our debut authors are Jim and Han, Laura Hulthen Thomas, Karen E. Osborne, Tina Carlson, and Peg Alford Purcell. And we've posted uh, excerpts from their debut books uh, online at PW.org. So Kevin Young is on our cover. That's right. And it's not the first time he's been there. No. He was on our cover back in 2003 uh, when he published his third poetry collection, uh, Jelly Roll, A Blues. And back then, uh, Colson Whitehead interviewed him, which was very exciting. Um, Now, uh, 14 years later, uh, he is the author of 10 poetry collections, as well as two nonfiction books, including the new one, uh, Bunk, the Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News, which you could not ask for a better title in this day and age. You could not. Uh, that's published in November by Grey Wolf Press. He is now the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And starting in November, he will be the new poetry editor of The New Yorker. So basically, he's killing it right he's, now. He's doing very well. Yeah. Um, so Clint Smith, who is a terrific writer, uh, went up to Harlem to the Schomburg Center and spoke with Kevin Young and wrote this really great profile for the new issue. And um, one of the things he writes about is uh, Kevin Young's experience as a young writer um, and his experience in the Boston area in the late 80s and early 90s as a member of the Darkroom Collective, uh, which was this group of writers, including Major Jackson, uh, Natasha Trethaway and others, um, who uh, you know, many of whom are now these sort of very big figures in in poetry, um, and sort of the community that he found there. Uh, he also writes about Kaveh Kahnem um, and sort of the the life changing experience of going to the Kaveh Kahnem retreat. And a few years ago, uh, that's actually where Clint Smith uh, first met Kevin Young. Um, And one of the really interesting parts of the profile is uh, Clint writing about that meeting and sort of his first impressions of Kevin Young. And so we asked Clint Smith to read that section of the profile for us, and we are going to hear that right now. I first met Kevin Young two summers ago at the Kaveh Khan retreat. 
an annual week-long workshop for black poets that serves as a refuge from the predominantly white literary spaces we spend most of our time in. Many of the fellows came from MFA programs and workshops where, as Juno Diaz put it in his 2014 treatise in The New Yorker, the default subject position of reading and writing of literature with a capital L was white, straight, and male. I was not in an MFA program myself, but had taken a poetry workshop as a small weekly reprieve from the data sets and statistical analysis of my own graduate studies in the sociology of education, only to have a similarly disillusioning experience as the only black person in a room full of mostly white writers. I talked to Kevin, for example, about how I had written a series of poems in the voice of my barber and didn't bring any of those poems into class because I didn't want to endure the stress of navigating a scenario where my workshop mates had to decide how to engage a poem laden with the n-word. He laughed in a way that some people do to signal that they understand, that they really understand, and nodded. Cave Canem exists because of that need, he said. At that first meeting, the gap between us couldn't have felt wider. I was a 20-something-year-old poet and a graduate student who had not yet finished a draft of my first manuscript. I was simply thrilled to have even been accepted to the retreat. Young was a Guggenheim Fellow and the author of 10 poetry collections, including Jelly Roll, a finalist for the National Book Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Award, and a book of nonfiction, The Grey Album, On the Blackness of Blackness, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and a winner of the Penn Open Book Award. He was a professor of creative writing and curator of one of the most impressive collections of literary archives in the country at Emory University. All that by the age of 46. And yet, he was so different from what we imagine our preeminent literary figures to be. There was no bravado or pretense. There was no condescension or sense of snobbery. My first memory of Young is seeing him playing pool with poet Major Jackson in the lobby of the dormitories where we were all staying. He snacked on a bag of chips between shots, and when I walked in, he looked up and asked, You know how to play? That week, as Young led our workshop, it was clear that the collective project we were all embarking on was about far more than what we were putting onto the page. It served as a reaffirmation that our work, our experiences, and the cultural idiosyncrasies of our voices were not something that should be compromised in order to be part of the literary community, but something that meaningfully contributed to its terrain. For many, it is often the only reminder they receive. I think Kave Kanem often served as a healing place for folks, he said. It helped focus the tradition that has always been there. More than simply being a space of healing, Kave Kanem, Young points out, has fundamentally transformed the landscape of black literature since it was founded two decades ago. He is adamant about this point. In the past decade alone, for example, there have been four black winners of the Pulitzer Prize in poetry. Tayemba Jess in 2017, Gregory Parlow in 2015, Tracy K. Smith in 2012, and Natasha Trethewey in 2007. As compared with three winners in the previous 85 years of the prize combined, Smith and Trethewey would go on to serve as Poets Laureates of the United States. Both of their first books were published after winning the Kavi Khanum Prize. Young was the judge who selected Smith's debut, The Body's Question, published by Grey Wolf in 2003. It's just like this unprecedented thing, he says, leaning back in his chair, soaking in the realization as if having it for the first time. Obviously, not all of this is because of Cave, but Cave is part of what I would call the renaissance of black letters. It's one that I think the Schomburg can be, and should be, at the center of. 
For young writers, part of Young's approachability stems from a recognition that not so long ago, he was also a young writer attempting to find a literary community. The community he found would both be personally and artistically transformative. Let's talk about David Sedaris. What? So everyone knows David Sedaris for his essays, of course, which are hilarious and insightful and poignant and sometimes surprisingly dark and all around pretty perfect. I mean, he was one of the first contemporary essayists that I fell in love with mm-hmm. when I was a young budding writer of 21. And I think someone gave me a copy of Barrel Fever. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically sitting in a dimly lit theater waiting for a movie to start as part of the Wisconsin Film Festival and reading that book aloud with a friend. And we were just like cackling Mm -hmm. in the room. I had never really experienced something so absurd and hilarious before. Um, And then just, you know, was a avid David Sedaris fan. Absolutely. A devotee. You and... and, uh, So many other people. So many others. (laughs) But what's less well-known is that a lot of those essays started out as diary entries. Uh, he's been keeping diaries pretty obsessively for the past 40 years. Yeah, 153 of them, to be exact, since his first, which he compiled in 1977, and which was actually a Kodak box stuffed of ephemera from his travels in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and these aren't just any diaries. They do involve writing, uh, notes, observations, scenes, and the beginnings of what would become some of his most famous essays. But there are also works of art with collections of photos, maps, postcards, and in some cases even trash he pulled out of garbage cans while out on walks. Uh, just stuff he's been collecting and compiling throughout most of his life. So this month, Little Brown is releasing the David Sedaris Diaries, a visual compendium, uh, a collection of photos of that artwork, which is featured in this issue's written image. And the book is a follow-up to Theft by Finding, which was published earlier this year and features selected text from those diaries. They chronicle Sedaris's life from 1977 through 2002. And they're funny, of course, but they're also really emotionally compelling um, and deal with things like being a struggling young writer, being gay in the 70s, a long battle with alcoholism and drug use, and the death of his sister. Right. It's really um, emotional stuff. And uh, I... You know, when I first read them, I wasn't exactly sure what I was expecting, but um, it really gave me a new perspective on David Sedaris as a writer and just made me appreciate him even more. And we actually have some audio from those entries um, dated 1982 through 2002, and we're going to listen to some of that right now. October 17th. I stayed up all night and worked on my new story. Unfortunately, I write like I paint, one corner at a time. I can never step back and see the whole picture. Instead, I concentrate on a little square and realize later that it looks nothing like the real live object. April 2nd. This morning, a female sheriff walked through my front door without knocking. I went into the kitchen, and after I identified myself, she apologized. She was looking for apartment number six. I was glad to point it out to her. I hope she takes those two and locks them up. May 6th. I found this excellent bit of advice in the Amy Vanderbilt Complete Book of Etiquette. 
If you start to shake hands with someone who has lost an arm, shake the other hand. If he has lost both arms, shake the tip of his artificial hand. Be quick and unembarrassed about it. June 7th. I checked the Oxford Book of Canadian Short Stories out of the library. One of the entries is titled, The Day I Sat with Jesus on the Sun Deck and a Wind Came Up and Blew My Kimono Open and He Saw My Breasts. May 9th. This morning I made a list of chores that might lift my spirits. 1. Lose 10 pounds. 2. Rewrite the last two stories so I can start something new. 3. Paint a picture of a mole. 4. Make myself go out when I don't want to. March 27th. I received an offer for the Citibank City Card, which promises me instant cash privileges if I need to spend time in a hospital. If I lose both hands and feet, I am entitled to $20,000 under their Cash Benefits for Accidental Dismemberment Clause. If I lose one hand or one foot, I get half that. But if I lose one hand and one foot, I'm back up to $20,000. April 6th, Raleigh. At the Austin airport, the magazines Swank, Busty, Stud, Playboy, and High Society are grouped under the heading Sophisticates. The New Yorker, on the other hand, is placed under General Interest. A few hours later, at the Dallas airport, I saw a sign reading, Patriotic T-shirts, 50% off. That pretty much represents the national mood. Tax time is here, and people are realizing that pride costs money. March 22nd. I taught today. Sometimes I go in with no idea of what to do. I have them write in class, and then I go to the stairwell to smoke and try to think of something. Today I told my students about a friend of mine who was going through a breakup. What do you do when you're trying to get over someone, I asked. They gave me the best advice. This issue's installment of Literary Magnet features Kiki Petrosino. Her third collection of poetry, Witch Wife, will be published in December by Saraban Books and reckons with the question of whether or not to have a child, which she says is the one terrain I can't navigate with any map. We asked her to read a little bit from the new book for us, and here she is with a few poems from Witch Wife. I married a horseman for his straight jaw and dark jackets, for he gave me his ring to wear as a cinch. My markings he called faint star, white boot, and drew a line of rain down the side of my cheek. I married him for the silence in his speech, for his black kerchief. All the time he drew and in this drawing we married. Now I live in the timber scent and tall smoke of his shadow. Evenings 
he returns to me from his work with his fine coat haltered in frost. This house has no doors. We pass each other, crossing our necks in hello. Confession Every month I decide not to try is a lung full of gold I can keep for myself. Still, I worry you'll come to me anyhow and hitch your hiccuping bud. My dear, I don't want to be got. I just want to get done with this month. I decide not to try. I decide on a wine. You keep spinning through the woods on green stars of pollen. Still, I worry you'll come to me anyhow. Your small breath troubles the flower I'm spilling. Did you leave sweet jam on the sill? Every month I decide not to try to find out. Late sun butters the glitz in my guts. My dear, I'm already botched. Still, I worry you'll come to me anyhow. Lately, I've dreamed of quilts stuffed with bees. It's a thing. Yet I don't see why I worry and worry. You come to me anyhow. Every month, I decide not to try. One of the books featured in page one this issue is Barbie Chang, a new poetry collection by Victoria Chang, published by Copper Canyon Press in November. The poems in this book explore subjects like race, prejudice, gender, privilege, the disillusionment of love, and the idea of the American dream. And it's told through a reimagining of the Barbie doll. So we're going to hear Victoria read a few poems from that book, Barbie Chang. Once Barbie Chang Loved Once Barbie Chang loved Mr. Darcy, who had so many rivals, who arrived at her doorstep each morning. He had so little body fat, he never floated to the surface of the pool. Barbie Chang watched him disappear like a servant. Maybe that's why she is always thirsty, always looking for someone else to make her worthy. Bartz says, lovers are wedged between two tenses of the now and the then. It's too early to say the mothers at school have ruled her out. They are the future tense, the then. The circle they form each day works as a ring around a planet, magnetic and genetic. If she sticks her head out the window, as if she is on a train, maybe night will take her head off. Once a man said everything. Once a man said everything Barbie Chang wanted to hear, except she is deaf. Sometimes she wonders about the depth of her love for others, or is she simply diving to eat better? Although she is deaf, she hears their oysters at the bottom. She can't get them because once she has applied sunscreen on her children, her hands are greasy, her palms are pale from trying to wipe out desire. What if everything on the bottom is really rotten and our ends are already written? What if there are no verbs, just nouns? 
What if saying something makes it true? What if becoming a witness instead of a victim were as simple as words? A wrist can't hold much weight. The man hanging out of the tower was forced out by the smoke or made a choice to exit the window. He held onto a rope until his hands slipped. If he could orient himself head first, we could say he wasn't falling, but actually diving. Dear P, someone will love you, many will love you, many will brother you, some of these loves will bother you, some will leave you, one might haunt you, hunt you in your sleep, make you weep the tearless kind of weep, the kind of weep that drowns your organs slowly. There are little oars in your body, little boats, grab onto them and row and row. Someone will tell you no, but you won't know he is right until you have already wrung your own heart dry, your hands dripping knives, until you have already reached your hands into his body and put them through his heart. Love is the only thing that is not an argument. Dear P, there will be a circle of girls. There will be many circles of girls who turn into circles of women. There will be many parties, many girls with corn and meat losing its red center. There will also be a circle of crows who circle the circle of boars, who circle the circle of grass, work their way into its center. There will be a circle of gnats who circle the dirty boars because there are awards for grouping easier than absence, easier than working against, easier than separating water with curtains. Good things are often in pieces, are backing away from doorways, are alone. The heart is alone in our bodies because it must be to love. That's it for this episode of Ampersand. Tune in next time when we will be talking about inspiration and the first issue of 2018. 2018. But first, a little shout out to iTunes users Taba <laughs> and Dissonant1. Yes. Uh, you may remember that last episode we kindly requested, pretty much begged, we begged. Definitely begged, shamelessly begged. Yes, uh, we begged you to uh, give us a little feedback on Ampersand uh, and, uh, you know, rate us on iTunes and, and maybe write a review and doggone it if uh, <laughs> seven people uh, rated us on iTunes. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to report that we are now a five-star podcast on iTunes and um, Dissonant One even went so far as to write, uh, keep up the excellence. We're going to try. Yeah. Um, you know, keep up the reviews and we'll, we'll keep up the excellence. So uh, tune in next time. To Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Five Star Podcast. <laughs> Ampersand is
is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Lonely Punk, Broke for Free, Yacht, and Springtide. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including 50 literary magazines and five small presses to submit to now, excerpts from 5 Over 50, and the Q&A with Jemiah Wilson at pw.org forward slash ampersand. 